Schaff Podcasts. Hi, I'm Michael Wright and welcome to The Long Read from Stuff. This week's story is called The Ballad of David Little and Mr Big. It's by Stuff senior writer Mike White, who joins me now. Hi, Mike. Hi, Michael. How are you? I'm good. Uh, This story is a bit of an epic, uh, so much so we're telling it in two parts. So just give us the big picture first. Uh, Who are David Little and Mr Big? Okay, so David Little's a father of three, a self-employed builder from the Manawatu who got himself caught up in a a murder investigation when Brett Hall disappeared from his Whanganui property. Mr Big is a person, or is both a person, an undercover police officer acting as the head of a criminal organisation, but it's also the name that's given to this undercover sting where the police try and entrap someone to confess to a crime they suspect them of. Intriguing. So tell us a bit more about the specifics here. You mentioned um, a man, Brett Hall, who who disappeared or was murdered, and the sting idea, Mr Big. What what went down here? So Brett Hall disappeared from his Whanganui property in 2011. Police suspected David Little of being the person who killed him, but it, they didn't have any evidence initially, and after three years they decided to launch this very controversial undercover operation, this Mr Big sting, to get David Little to admit that he'd killed Brett Hall. And it worked. Yes, and as we'll hear, this is a a very convoluted and complicated sting operation. So we'll get into the specifics in the story, but there are a lot of moral and legal questions kicking around here around this idea of Mr Big. Is this a bad idea, this scheme that we're about to hear about, or or was this just a case of police executing what could have been a good idea badly? Well, you get different opinions on that. Uh, This tactic or technique has been used in Canada since the 1990s. It's become very controversial despite having a very high success rate of actually getting convictions of people who police believe have committed crimes. But it's not been used in many other countries, including the United States, the UK, very sparingly used in Australia. But New Zealand still uses it and our courts allow it to be used. However, as you'll hear in this story, there's a a number of very strong concerns about its use. And what happened to David Little is a case in point about how it can go terribly wrong. Thanks, Mike. Now, here is Mike, and be warned with quite a bit of strong language, reading his story, The Ballad of David Little and Mr Big. $50,000 of cash sat on the table in front of David Little. Alongside it lay a brochure for a Porsche SUV Little had dreamt of owning. Opposite him sat a man named Scott. Little knew him as Mr Big, the boss of a secretive criminal organisation Little had been involved with for the last three months. Via drug deals, standovers, stakeouts and robberies, Little had gradually been drawn further into the gang and the mythical man at its centre, Mr Big. Now, here he was in person, offering Little the chance of a lifetime, the chance to join the gang permanently. He'd get riches he'd never had before, be taken on a five-star trip to Australia, only have to work two days a week, be able to pay his bills and buy firewood to heat the tumble-down Halcombe cottage he lived in with his wife and three children. For Little, 
an alcoholic with little work and mounting money woes, the offer was utterly life-changing and something he was desperate to accept. But before all this could happen, there was something Scott needed. He needed little to come clean and admit any crimes in his past because his syndicate operated on complete trustworthiness and honesty. And Scott had heard Little was the prime suspect in the murder of David Little's best mate, Brett Hall, who'd mysteriously disappeared three years earlier in 2011. Little had always denied it through countless police interrogations. And that's what he told Scott, that he had nothing to do with it, that Hall was most likely the victim of a drug deal gone wrong. But Scott wasn't satisfied. He told Little that's not what his contact inside the police was telling him. Scott said he trusted this cop a thousand percent. Said he didn't give a fuck if you've knocked this boy over. I couldn't fucking care less. My loyalty's not to him, it's to you, okay? The crucial thing was honesty, he stressed, if Little was going to be accepted into the gang. David Little, a physically broken man, living in a broken house, with a broken life, glanced at the cash, glimpsed the car, then looked up at Scott. All right, then, he blurted. I'll tell you the truth. I did do it. Of course, Scott wasn't Mr Big. He wasn't the head of a crime syndicate with connections stretching from Chinese drug cartels to corrupt cops, as little had been led to believe. He wasn't even Scott. He was an undercover cop, one of many who'd created an elaborate fantasy world to trap Little into admitting he'd murdered Brett Hall. Within weeks of Hall disappearing in late May 2011 from his remote property 30 kilometres northeast of Whanganui, police became convinced Little had killed him. Little had been building a house for Hall on the block of bush Hall half-owned, up a rugged four-wheel drive track in an area near the Whanganui River known as Pitangi. The police theory was that Hall was unhappy with Little's slow building progress and believed Little was skimming money meant for materials. When Hall confronted Little about this, Little shot him, dismembered him, and buried his body far away. It was a theory largely based on dubious information and questionable instinct. It also seemed to overlook a much more likely line of inquiry, that Hall had been killed by an associate in the drug world he was deeply involved with. Hall had already suffered two home invasions, one involving being shot at. He slept with guns beside him. The weekend he went missing, Hall had a major drug deal going down, with people linked to the mongrel mob and other gangs. There was no forensic or physical evidence linking Little to the crime. So in lengthy interviews, police relied on challenging his alibis and daring him to agree to the scenario they painted of how he'd killed Hall. They bugged his phones, but Little said nothing incriminating. They followed him, but learnt nothing. By the end of 2011, unable to amass enough evidence to charge Little, police scaled down their inquiry. However, by 2014, They'd begun investigating the case again, still convinced Little was the culprit. And in meetings that have never been detailed, with senior officers who can't be identified, 
Police made the decision to launch a complex and controversial sting they'd used in the past. Mr Big was about to be resurrected and to enter David Little's life. In October 2009, Brett Hall walked out of jail after serving five years of a seven-year sentence for dealing methamphetamine and possessing a pistol. While in prison, he'd met another drug dealer, and the pair had bought the Pitangi section in August 2010. Hall shifted onto the property, living in a caravan. He had a fire pit for cooking and a long drop toilet. He was keen to get a house built, so contacted his friend of 30 years, David Little, who had done building work most of his life. Construction began in late 2010. Hall was Little's best friend and best man at his wedding. An arrangement was made between them. Hall would give Little cash to buy building supplies to get the house to a state where it was enclosed with the roof, cladding and windows. The total cost was set at $70,000, with the materials estimated at $30,000, and the remainder paid to Little for his labour at the end of the job. Despite being on parole, Hall had gone back to dealing and using drugs and was suspected of secretly manufacturing methamphetamine at Pitangi. He was known to hide money and drugs on the property. Police later found a bucket containing $14,000 in cannabis buried there, and he carried large amounts of cash on him. Little suffered a shoulder injury and underwent surgery in February 2011, which slowed building progress and caused Hall some frustration. But by May 2011, the framing was complete and ready for a council inspection. On Friday, May 27, 2011, Little visited Pitangi to work on the house and spent time with Hall. Early the next morning, Hall's son Damien arrived at Pitangi to go hunting with two friends. But there was no sign of his father. His caravan was open, his guns were missing, and his quad bike was parked up on the edge of the bush. So they assumed he'd gone hunting, and they left. On Sunday, May 29, Little says he tried to go fishing early in the morning, then drove to Pitangi for some final building work before the council inspection, and had a beer with Hall, who said he was going hunting. Little left around 11am. That afternoon, several people and vehicles were seen on the four-wheel drive track leading to Hall's property. The next day, a neighbouring beekeeper heard cries for help from Hall's camp and saw a glint of light. She was so concerned, police were alerted. When Hall, 47, still hadn't surfaced by Wednesday, June 1st, police arrived at Pitangi and a huge search was launched. But Hall was never found. There was no sign of where he'd gone, other than his quad bike still parked near the bush line, so police suspected foul play. Despite Hall's underworld connections and known drug dealing, police instead focused on David Little as the prime suspect. They believed Hall discovered Little was ripping him off, and this led to Little killing him. This was despite Hall being Little's only real friend, Little having no history of violence, the last of his minor convictions being 26 years prior, and the fact Hall still owed Little tens of thousands of dollars for his work on the house. Still, police noted Little lied about buying guns for Hall, who wasn't allowed firearms due to his parole conditions. 
and gave conflicting explanations about a mysterious early morning drive to beaches near Bulls on the Sunday morning. Suspicion became certainty that Little had murdered Hall, and he was interrogated eight times in the weeks after Hall's disappearance. Police repeatedly accused him of being guilty, and once warned Little he was facing 18 years in prison. Despite realising he was the police's number one suspect, Little never called a lawyer. Instead, he continued to deny he'd killed his friend, telling police that Hall was back dealing methamphetamine and had likely been killed over a drug deal gone wrong. Police refused to believe him, while at the same time appearing to easily accept the alibi claims of Hall's drug world associates. Investigators, frustrated at being unable to prove Little's guilt, referred the case to the Police Covert Investigations Group. By March 2014, the plan to ensnare David Little in a fictional world and get him to confess was complete. A Mr Big undercover operation was set in motion. Mr Big operations are the brainchild of the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. They work like this. Police strongly suspect someone is guilty but don't have the evidence to charge them. So undercover officers befriend the target, pretending to be part of a successful crime syndicate headed by Mr Big. The syndicate has underworld contacts and Mr Big has certain dirty cops in his pocket who help the gang get away with its crimes. All those who get invited to be part of the gang are offered a luxurious lifestyle and promise they'll be completely looked after by Mr Big. The suspect initially gets to help out on numerous operations and crimes, all of which are being staged by the undercover officers. Eventually, the target is invited to join the group. But first, they have to meet Mr Big, and as a sign of their honesty and loyalty, have to confess to anything they've done wrong in their past. Mr Big explains this is because he doesn't want the crimes causing trouble for the gang in the future and insists his crooked cop contacts can make the issues go away. At this stage, the suspect, believing the Mr Big gang is real and bedazzled by the lifestyle being offered, confesses to the crime police believe they've committed in order to become part of the gang. Once this has happened, Mr. Big and the other gang members reveal themselves as police officers and arrest the suspect on the basis of their confession. The ruse is so effective, it's been used over 400 times in Canada since the 1990s, with a 95% conviction success rate. However, concerns about its legitimacy have seen it used sparingly in the rest of the world and not at all in America or the United Kingdom. Critics argue the technique is tantamount to entrapment, given the inducements offered to confess. Moreover, the scenario is essentially police questioning by stealth. The suspect is unaware and not offered legal safeguards, like the right to a lawyer or to remain silent, as required by law if the officers were in uniform. New Zealand police adopted the Mr Big technique in about 2005. They refused to release virtually any details about it and have sought to keep Mr Big cases hidden from the public, but say it's been used seven times, all homicides, and has resulted in conviction every time. The best-known example is the case of Kamal Reddy, 
who was suspected of killing his ex-girlfriend, Pakiza Yusuf, and her three-year-old daughter, Jojo, in 2006. In 2014, Reddy confessed his guilt to undercover officers he believed were part of a Mr Big syndicate, and who promised him they could make sure he was never charged for the murders. He then showed them where he buried the bodies, under a newly built motorway bridge on Auckland's North Shore. Another high-profile case was Tawara Witchman, accused of causing his 11-month-old daughter Tegan's death in 2009 when he was 17. After a five-month Mr Big operation in 2012 and 13, where he was paid more than $2,000 for helping the gang in numerous crimes, including fake burglaries and selling drugs, Witchman confessed to Mr Big that he'd shaken Tegan. He eventually pleaded guilty to her manslaughter. Argument about whether the controversial technique is legal has dogged its use in New Zealand. Somewhat bizarrely, despite being the most deceitful tactic used by police, they don't even require a warrant from a judge to carry it out. As David Little's lawyer Christopher Stevenson told the courts, the behaviour of police lying to a citizen over months whilst posing as methamphetamine dealers, rapists and prostitutes, as happened here, and luring citizens into faux crime is plainly, on anyone's assessment, right at the limits of tolerable state conduct. In Witchman's case, the High Court judge allowed the evidence, despite noting ordinary New Zealanders, would not expect the police to engage in lies, deception and blatantly misleading conduct of the kind that happened in this case. The Court of Appeal overturned this decision, saying the rewards Witchman received made his confession unreliable. In 2015, in a 3-2 split decision, the Supreme Court ruled Mr Big's scenarios could be used by police. However, the warning of one of the dissenting judges, then Chief Justice Sean Elias, echoed the concerns of many who believed the risk of false confessions was simply too high and that the technique should be barred. The statements were obtained by threats, promises or misrepresentations, which raise issues as to their reliability, Justice Elias wrote. The power of the state was used to play on Witchman's hopes and fears. If the views I have expressed mean that Mr Big's scenarios to obtain confessional evidence cannot be undertaken, I think that is the price of observation of fair process. You can't imagine how horrible it is to take the stand and be treated like you're the one in the wrong, especially in a sexual crime situation. From Bird of Paradise for Stuff, this is Tell Me About It. Going behind the scenes of our journalism to the voices of real people whose stories make the news. You're just so out of control of it, you know. I felt like a ghost of the system a lot of the time. It's like, no, why can no one actually see who I am? With me, Kirsty Johnston, Michelle Duff, and our producer, Noelle McCarthy. Can I ask you a question that makes things quite basic? Has it all been worth it? From a justice point of view, I would still struggle to say that right now, but it's still raw. Tell Me About It was made possible by New Zealand On Air. Subscribe and review us, please, on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. The first step in the Mr Big technique is to ease your way into the suspect's world and confidence and get alongside them. 
In the Tower Witchman case, undercover officers called at his house and offered him the chance to win a four-wheel drive adventure in Rotorua if he answered a survey about petrol stations. Shortly after, he was told he was one of the winners. But of course, when he arrived in Rotorua, all the other winners were actually undercover police. In 2014, police set about finding a way to lure David Little into their web of fiction and false friendship. Based on information gleaned from bugging Little's house and phone calls in 2011, police had created a profile of Little, his personalities, his hobbies, his financial situation, and weaknesses they could target. That profile provided them with the way to get to Little. Fishing. Like Witchman, undercover officers door-knocked Little, saying they were running a survey with a mystery prize. That prize turned out to be a day's fishing off Wellington's south coast, something the fishing-mad Little couldn't resist. On board the charter boat, Little was befriended by a man using the name Nick O'Neill, an undercover cop who became a constant in Little's life for the next three months. They met more than 20 times. Nick explained how he worked for a guy, Scott, who was involved in numerous criminal activities. Not only was he highly successful, he was incredibly generous, and his team would regularly get a big payday, which, as another undercover cop told Little, was like a hundred Christmases rolled into one. Nick said they needed an extra pair of hands and offered Little a chance to make some money on the side. To Little, who was struggling with the physical demands of building and struggling to find work to support his family, this was a godsend. The first job was to repossess a car. They collected $5,000 from a police officer posing as a prostitute named Candy. Little acted as a lookout on Wainuiamata Hill while the gang supposedly raided a house for firearms. He went into gun shops to make sketches for future robberies. He took phones across the country to provide alibis, met Chinese drug dealers, and went to Nelson to photograph a mystery yacht. He was frequently involved in counting thousands of dollars he understood came from drug deals. During much of this, Little was driven in a Porsche SUV he was told he'd receive once he was admitted to the gang. All these crimes were fictitious. Throughout 24 undercover scenarios with Little, Nick and the other gang members continually stressed Scott's requirement for complete loyalty, honesty and trustworthiness amongst members. Little was told of one member, Steve, who was kicked out of the gang for merely lying to Scott about a minor matter related to a car. Scott could fix anything for them, Little was told, but you had to be upfront with him. To emphasise this, the undercover police team concocted a scenario where one gang member, CJ, had assaulted and raped a 13-year-old. CJ had informed Scott about this and Scott was dealing with it. Little and Nick were then instructed to go to Wellington's police station where a dodgy cop Scott knew, with access to crime exhibits, would meet them. As they sat in their car outside, the uniformed cop, Lee, came out of the station with a package, supposedly the rape kit from CJ's victim that contained CJ's DNA, and told Little and Nick to destroy it. This done, CJ was provided with a false passport and told to go to Australia under a new identity and lie low for a bit. 
David Little couldn't help but be amazed by Scott's power and the organisation's support, and he couldn't help but be bewitched by the money he was being exposed to. Cash in the tens of thousands, drugs worth hundreds of thousands. Little was an easy mark. He'd left school at 14 with no qualifications, had never been on a plane in his life, and couldn't even work a modern cell phone. His life was simple. He kept pigeons and went fishing. He'd inherited his cottage from his parents with its crumbling plaster facade and driveway stained with oil from vehicles kept on the road by hope and repairs. He was a heavy smoker with lung problems, reliant on painkillers and an alcoholic, having drunk heavily since he was 16. On the fishing trip where Nick first sidled up to him, Little drank 20 cans of beer. Given this, police were concerned about the veracity of anything Little told them. Brett Hall had been his only real non-family friend, and Little was in a desperate financial situation, having been unable to work because of illness and injury, missing mortgage payments, struggling to provide basics for his family, like firewood to keep the house warm while his children were sick and home from school. Now he was being offered membership of a group that regularly received big paydays. We don't get paid weekly or fortnightly, Nick told Little. There's just money all over the place. The gang offered so much that Little lacked in his life. Luxury, friends, support, prestige. He was hopeless at many of the tasks he was given by the gang. He inadvertently took a selfie of himself on a phone he was meant to be relocating, left clothes behind in a motel on a secret trip. But despite this, the gang was effusive about his work, constantly encouraging him. Behind his back, however, via secret microphones, the undercover officers described him as a c*** and socially fucked. Gradually it was indicated there might be an opening in the gang, as Nick wanted to shift back to Auckland. All Little needed to do was meet Scott and convince Mr Big he could be trusted. On Thursday, June 26, 2014, Nick took a phone call. Scott wants to see you at two o'clock at his apartment, he told Little. You know what that means? It's your fucking meeting, mate. That's fucking awesome. Oh shit, hot. This is it, mate. You're that close, that fucking close. It's one of those times in life where you have a moment. And depending on which way you go, it's fucking up to the sky, all your Christmases come at once, or it's just fucking back to your normal life and on you go. Little had been waiting for this, the chance to change his future and his family's fortunes. His wife, Helen, was anxious he passed the final test, and even his children were asking when he might get this promised new job. None of them knew the work was supposedly criminal. To help make a good impression, Nick took Little to get his hair cut and then buy a new shirt for the occasion. When they arrived at Scott's apartment, Scott handed Nick a wad of cash and told him to make a booking at an expensive Italian restaurant for later that night. Then Scott and Little talked for an hour, discussing the work Little had done, the hole CJ had got himself into and how Scott had helped him get out, and how trust and honesty were utterly paramount. That was when Scott laid it on the line with Little and raised the matter of Brett Hall's death. When Little denied it, 
Scott demurred and said he didn't believe him. Little saw his gang membership and its life-changing benefits slipping away from him. That was when he said he'd done it. In that instant, in those few stammered words, he gave police exactly what they'd set out to get. All those months and all those choreographed hoax scenarios ago. But they didn't pull out badges and handcuff Little right then and there. Scott stayed in character, welcomed Little into the gang, and then quizzed him on how he'd carried out Hall's murder. This is what Little told him. Little was worried Hall was getting back into the drug world and might do something to him, and there'd been a fight between the two friends. They'd patched things up, but when they went hunting on Friday 27th of May 2011, Little said he shot Hall between the eyes with a 22 rifle. Hall didn't die immediately, so Little put a plastic bag he'd brought for this purpose over Hall's head to suffocate him and catch any blood. Once Hall was dead, Little said he cut him in half on a tarpaulin using a hacksaw and a standing knife and then burnt the tarpaulin in the fireplace at Hall's camp. Little said he then loaded the body parts into rubbish bags he'd bought from the supermarket, the torso in one bag, the legs in the other. He then drove home and left Hall's dismembered body in the back of his unlocked Nissan Tirano, covered with firewood, outside his house for nearly two days. Early on the Sunday, May 29th, Little drove to two beaches along the Manawatu Whanganui coast, Turakina Beach, 30 kilometres northwest of Bulls, and Himatangi Beach, about 65 kilometres south of Turakina Beach. He told Scott that at each site, he dug an enormous hole at the high tide line with a shovel, put in Hall's body parts, doused them with petrol, added firewood, and let them burn for two hours before filling in the holes. The day after Little's Mr. Big meeting and confession, Little took Scott and Nick to the places he said he'd buried Hall's body, after Scott promised to fix any problems with the crime. However, Little directed them first to a location in Santoff Forest near Scott's Ferry, and well away from the coast, and said he'd buried Hall's legs there. He then took them to a spot near Himatangi Beach, where he said he'd buried the torso, claiming he'd driven along the beach to get there. Police subsequently excavated both sites and found nothing. Later that day, while Little was sitting at a Whanganui cafe with Nick and Scott, the world he'd been living in for the past three months collapsed around him. Two detectives walked up and arrested him for Hall's murder. Suddenly, Little realised the friends he thought he'd made were actually undercover cops intent on proving he'd killed Hall. There would be no big payday, no comfortable life, no financial security for him or his family. The fantasies of Porsches and overseas trips and mates and partying that he'd imagined evaporated as he was read his rights. In their place, Little was handed a set of prison clothes and led to a jail cell. Little spent two years in jail awaiting trial before being bailed. Continual delays, mostly due to police failing to disclose vital evidence to Little's lawyers, led to his trial being repeatedly postponed. This included thousands of pages of information from the undercover operation, 
hundreds of police notebook pages, and most crucially, a statement made to police by an informant who said Hall's murder was arranged by an associate who'd stolen drugs worth $200,000 from him, not by David Little. The information had been given to police in March 2014, before the Mr Big operation began, and was forwarded to the police homicide team. When Little's lawyers became aware of the statement in July 2017, they asked why hadn't it been shown to them before now? The officer in charge of the investigation at the time claimed he'd not seen the document until that moment. But when the defence requested an electronic footprint of the critical document, it showed the officer had not only seen the job sheet with the informant's claims in 2014, but had sent or received eight emails about it with various people. Despite this, the informant's claims hadn't been followed up. Little's lawyers also had to get the court to order police to hand over transcripts and audio recordings of the Mr Big Team scenarios involving Little, after police and the Crown refused to release them. This was the first time such recordings have ever been disclosed in New Zealand. Despite a senior police officer assuring the court in February 2017 that all police notebooks had been disclosed, the following month, nearly 600 more pages of notebook entries were released for the first time, and more were later given to Little's defence. Successive statements from the courts described the police and prosecution failure to disclose vital information and improperly redact documents as poor by any measure, a serious failure, disturbing, troubling and indefensible. Just as Simon France fumed at one point, the prosecution services as a whole should be embarrassed at the least by what has happened. The family of the victim, the public and the court deserve better. Just as France was so concerned about the situation, he delayed Little's trial again in October 2017 and ordered that police carry out an audit of what had and hadn't been disclosed. Police immediately stood down one of the investigation's lead officers and the two-month audit by four other officers, led by Detective Sergeant Grayson Joins, resulted in hundreds more relevant documents being released, including nearly all of the notebooks of one of the officers in charge of the investigation, Detective Senior Sergeant Dave Kirby, which somehow hadn't been handed over until then. Nearly everything in them was redacted by police, however. With the judge believing the problems had now been solved, Little's trial finally began in Palmerston North in October 2018, more than four years after the Mr Big Sting and Little's arrest. After the end of the trial's first week, one of the officers who at one stage headed the investigation and was the officer in charge of disclosure, former Detective Sergeant John Gleason, was reading his statements ahead of giving evidence. As he did, Gleason said he suddenly realised large parts of his notebooks hadn't been handed over to Little's lawyers. This included details of someone claiming to have been present when Brett Hall was killed and that it was a drug deal gone wrong, not including Little. Noting that police had held this information for six years without releasing it and barely able to contain his frustration, Justice France immediately aborted the trial. More disclosure continued to be drip-fed from police, including details of another informant 
who told police how Hall was killed and where he was buried. Again, none of it involved David Little. Police admitted they hadn't got round to following up this information. Little's lawyers, Elizabeth Hall and Christopher Stevenson, remained so concerned about what information was still being kept from them, on two occasions they drove to Whanganui Police Station and went through thousands of documents in the exhibit room. The first time, they uncovered a letter from Brett Hall's drug-dealing colleague apologising to Hall for stealing money and drugs from him and offering to give Hall his half of the Pitangi property they co-owned. The second time, Elizabeth Hall says police at the station made it abundantly clear it was an unwelcome intrusion by the defence into the exhibit room. I was essentially shut into an airless room for the day. There was nowhere to sit, no chairs, no table to work at, no ability to open a window, no air conditioning. Surrounded by clothes and duvets and cans of flammable liquid, all seized by police from Brett Hall's camp or his mother's house in 2011, Elizabeth Hall discovered a container marked Box with Papers. In it was a black rubbish bag containing notes made by Brett Hall detailing everything that had been spent on his new house and confirming what Little had told police about the payment arrangements. It put whatever suggestion David had any reason to kill his best friend completely out the window, Elizabeth Hall says. All the notes had been examined by police, but never disclosed to Little or his lawyers. I think outrage was the predominant emotion that I had on the drive from Whanganui back to Wellington, Hall says. In September 2019, Little's trial finally commenced in Wellington, with Little's lawyers insisting his confession was false and only made so that he could join Mr Big's successful and lucrative organisation. Over nine weeks, the jury heard hours of secret recordings from the Mr Big operation, during which Little was blissfully unaware he was part of a cynically created world aimed at getting him to confess to killing Brett Hall. That eventual confession to Scott proved too powerful, and the jury convicted Little of Hall's murder. At his sentencing, Justice Jill Mallon noted, The offending was aberrant. You are normally a peaceful, non-violent person who gets on with things that life throws up. She sentenced Little to life in prison with a non-parole period of 11 years. That was part one of The Ballad of David Little and Mr Big on The Long Read from Stuff, written and read by Mike White and produced by me, Michael Wright. This episode was recorded by Jack Price. Stuff's podcast director is Adam Dudding. If you listened via our website, you can hear this story and more like it on The Long Read podcast, available on all the usual platforms. If you liked what you heard, please give us a five-star rating and a review. It helps other listeners find us. Thanks for listening.